Hi, Misfits. This is Kevin. And this is Kate. Welcome to Horrorwood. It's a holiday week here. It's Thanksgiving. And since it is Thanksgiving in a few days here in America, I have a Thanksgiving case for you. And if you're not in America, I have a case for you. Did you ever celebrate Thanksgiving abroad? Yes. But like nothing, like there was no, I was in London at the time. Yeah. I just was, I woke up in a hotel room and I was like, happy Thanksgiving to me. <laughs> when, I, when I was doing my master's over there, I got all my course, my English course mates together and I made a Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, for nice. Them. But I fucked it up oh. and it tasted like shit. That's and so bad. then I felt really bad because you they were like, oh, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I pull out a raw turkey and just throw it on the ground. <laughs> like Shots fired. <laughs> Sorry. Um, We only have one piece of biz nasty to cover this morning, and that is it is someone's birthday (gasps) this week. Kevin is having a birthday. It's on Thanksgiving this year. It is. And so I just want to say happy birthday to you. Thank you, you, Kate. And I might have a little something for you after (gasps) we're done recording. Maybe. Uh, Okay. So today we are talking about Karen Cupsonet. And if her name is not familiar to you, there's probably a couple of reasons for that. Number one, she died in her West Hollywood apartment at the age of 22, just as she was beginning to book roles in TV and film. So she wasn't a household name quite yet. And two, her death came just less than a week after the assassination of JFK. Oh, shit. So the media was a little busy with the death of the president oh, and all. All the stuff that gets forgotten because of, like, national stuff. Some conspiracy theorists even believe the two deaths were linked because Karen was the daughter of prominent talk show host, radio personality, and columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times, Irv Kupsnet. Mr. Chicago. Yes, he was known as Mr. Chicago, and he usually went by the nickname Cup. Most people called him Cup. He was known for writing about celebrities and politicians. And I don't think I can overstate Cup's influence on the arts and politics. Celebrities clamored to have their name mentioned in what was eventually called Cup's column in the Chicago Sun Times. Even though he was technically considered a gossip columnist, mm-hmm. His goal wasn't to sensationalize or to negatively impact someone's reputation. That's not what he was about. He was all about promoting and just helping get people's names out there. Or like if a new restaurant was opening, one mention from him and that restaurant would be booked for months. It's like that show on PBS. Um, I know what you're talking Dine, about. I almost said diners, drive-ins, and dine. That's not it. No. Um, come dine with it. No, not come uh, dine with I know me. what you're talking about. Yeah, it's that show where like they'll get like three or four local Chicagoans, yes. and they'll choose their favorite restaurant, and then all of them have to go to it. I've gone to a lot of restaurants based on that me show. Me too. Yeah. I still want to go to... Hun- have you been to Honey Butter Fried Chicken? Oh, yeah. I have not. Kevin. I want it. We'll go sometime. Can we go? Yes. Okay, amazing. 
a plaque that was in the lobby of the Sun Times before it was torn down to make room for Trump Tower uh, referred to Cup as quote a chronicler of Chicago nightlife, companion to celebrities, confidant of presidents, friend to all. His wife Essie was among the first members of the Jeff Awards committee. Jeff. And she was a co-chairwoman for the Jeff Awards, which for those not in Chicago or who just aren't aware of what that is, the Jeff Awards are like the Tony Awards for Chicago. And in the 70s, the Cupsonets were key in getting big names to attend the ceremony as presenters. Well. Like Truman Capote, Sid Caesar, Uh, Rita Moreno. They really helped launch the Jeff Awards thanks to Cup's column and his position as a talk show host. And the Cupsonets are credited with getting the award ceremony broadcast on TV. That doesn't happen anymore. So it's to say that they were an, very influential in the arts is... Is an understatement. Yes. Have you been to the Jeffs? Yes. I've never been to one. Matt got nominated for Best Directing a few years ago and we went. And I wore a great dress, which I can't fit into anymore, but we're not going to talk about that. Anywho. I'm sure we could make it happen. Kate's going to wear her beautiful dress again. And I'm, I'm going to have to wear some Spanx underneath it. I have some shapewears. Okay. We'll, we'll wrap you up like a mummy. Thank you. <laughs> so all this to say, Cup had a lot of power and a lot of connections with Hollywood and politics. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about Karen. Karen. When Karen Cupsnit was born on March 6, 1941, in Chicago, Illinois, her parents gave her the name Roberta Lynn, which she went by the first two decades of her life. Isn't there a country singer named Roberta Lynn? Loretta Lynn. Oh, yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. She was Cup and (laughs) Essie's first kid and the apple of their eyes. I like that name, Essie. I want to use that for like, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but like, I think it'd be a fun name for like a kitty. Her her full name was Esther, oh, and she went by Essie. Oh, oh. But well, I, I still but I, love the yeah, name I Esther. Like it. They gave her the nickname Cookie, and that's how they always referred to her, even after her death. Three years after she was born, the Cupsnits had a second child, this time a son. They named Jerry. Jerry didn't get a nickname. He was not the apple well, of his parents' eyes. <laughs> I would have given Jerry a nickname. I would have too. He was, was he a good person? He was. Okay. He was also just Jerry. Not because he was a bad kid or anything like that. That wasn't it at all. They just favored Karen or Roberta as she was known at that time. Jer Bear. There you go. It was clear who the favorite child was in the family because whereas Cup and that Essie sucks. were very hands-on with Karen mm-hmm. and doted on her, Jerry was primarily raised by the governess. Yes. The governess. A governess. Oh, are we in Downton Abbey? Because the Cupsonets had money. Money, money. Irv, or Cup, came from nothing but had worked his way up to a very successful career, so he was bringing in the cash. And Essie came from a life of privilege and wealth. And to understand Karen, we need to talk about Essie. Essie grew up on the Gold Coast. Which we just talked about about in the the Candyman episode. The Gold Coast is a very affluent area of Chicago. Essie's dad had money, so she didn't really want for anything. Her own grandson, David, told Chicago Magazine, quote, 
you see pictures of her as a little girl, she was like Paris Hilton. She was totally Damn. about being pretty and spoiled. Wow. So I went to a cabaret show of this woman. I don't want to say her name because it wasn't a great show. Oh, okay. Um, but she's much older. And so the crowd was like a lot older. Like sure. we're talking 70s, 80s. Sure. And there was this woman there. She was drunk out of her mind. This was at the Venus Cabaret, okay. uh, which is Mercury Theater on oh, South yeah. Port. Um, and she was drunk out of her mind. She was dressed gorgeous. White mm. suit Ooh. with like a fedora, like a gray fedora. I love that. Big glasses. It's just sitting there. Like the picture of like wealth. Yes. Um, and But she was drunk. So she was talking through the entire show very loudly. Ah. And so the staff were trying to like keep her quiet. And they're like, ma'am, you need to stop. You need to just stop. Um, even the person performing was like, you need to stop. Her Ooh. name was Kathleen. Okay. I knew, I garnered that much. But <laughs> she was like yelling at the staff and being like, ah, oh, fuck you. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then she goes, you can't tell me what to do. I'm a gold coaster. <gasps> yeah. Okay. That voice you just did sounds very much like Essie. Really? Like that is Essie's vibe, okay. to be honest. Essie's dream was to become a dancer, but her father basically forbade it. I haven't been able to find the reason why, but my guess would be he didn't think it was something a person could make a career out of. She wanted to be a performer, and she loved celebrity, and when that dream didn't come true for her, she pushed it on to Karen. Oh, no. Essie was a chain smoker. She cursed like a sailor, and she barely ate. She only ate to stay alive, essentially. <laughs> like, she wasn't grazing in the kitchen for snacks. Like, to her, eating was something you only did out of necessity. She's that is like, not how I feel. Every three days, she's like, oh, give me one of those water biscuits. I need a cheese cube. It probably wasn't even that. It was probably like a celery or something. I mean, probably. Essie didn't really care about you unless you were someone important. Oh, this makes me sad. Like, they they seem to be doing good for, like, the arts and the community. But yes. But just not... It's it's complicated. Yeah. She did everything in her power to support her husband Cup's career because if he remained a prominent figure in society, so did she. And she cared deeply about her position and keeping up appearances. She wasn't afraid to speak her mind and kind of went about with the attitude of, I can do and say whatever I want because of who I am and who I'm married to. Yuck. <laughs> There's an amazing anecdote about when she and Cup attended a fundraiser in the 90s for Bill Clinton, who was president at the time. She had emphysema at this point, but was still a chain smoker. And while Cup was talking with Clinton, she was sitting across the room smoking a cigarette and the Secret Service went up to her and they're like, Mrs. Cupsnit, I'm so sorry, but you can't smoke inside. And she was like, oh, okay, I'll put it out. And then the minute they walked away, she went right on smoking. So they approach her again and again and again. <laughs> and every time they're like, I'm sorry, you can't smoke in here. And she's like, oh, right, right, right. I'll, I'll put it out. I'll put it out. Finally, the Secret Service agent goes up to her and says, Mrs. Cupsnit, the president has requested that you don't smoke in the house. To which she replied, fuck the president. And went right on smoking. And the Secret Service agent was like, ah. Why didn't they kick her out? Because she's a cup Because she's a cup yep. Ooh, That lady I saw at that cabaret show is her. Maybe, maybe it, it was, is. Maybe it was her. It was reincarnated. <laughs> uh, so yeah, she just sat there and finished that cigarette. Cup, on the other hand, was the opposite. He was friends with everyone. Many people recall him as being someone who rarely said 
anything unkind about another person. Because even though his news column was technically a gossip column, he never wrote about a person to drag them down, like I mentioned before. It was always to give them a boost. Which is one of the reasons why he had so many celebrity friends, because they all knew one mention from Cup in his column could be life-changing. Do you think that he, like, he knew a lot of people, but do you think people were, like, using him for that? I think there was a little bit of both. Okay, because, like, sometimes in those situations, it's like you have to evaluate those friendships of, like, is it actually real, or is this person just trying to... I think there was a little bit of both of that. Okay. He didn't care who you were or what job you had, unlike Essie. He treated you the same. He would talk to a busboy with the same demeanor as he would talk to the president. Good. Yeah. I love that. It's always so interesting when you have that dynamic between two people like, yeah. in a marriage. He was cool to just let her be her, you know? Like, that's one thing about the two of them that when you see them in interviews and stuff, it's like you can see that he's going to let her say what she needs to say and do her thing. And that's kind of how they worked. Great. But she was kind of an asshole to him. Anyway. <laughs> Damn it. We could literally do an entire episode on Cup. And maybe one day we will just to kind of go into like the scandals and stuff from oh, that time period. So interesting. But today I'm just giving you enough background so that you have an idea of where Karen, Karen is coming from. Yes, thank you. Pretty much from the moment Karen was born, Essie began pushing her towards a life in the performing arts. She wanted her to be a star. Basically, she was trying to live out her dream through her daughter, which never good. No, let your kids decide for themselves which path they want to take. Or you end up like um, the lady we just covered, who was in the pageants. Oh, Tammy Lynn. Tammy Lynn with the clip-in teeth and the flippers. Uh, But we don't know if she was wearing flippers. But Kate and I are both wearing flippers now. (laughs) It's now my new look. Karen was a cute kid. When she and Essie would walk down the street, people would be like, oh, such a beautiful child, which, of course, had Essie beaming. Oh, my God. Ew. And she and Cup used to tell Karen that she looked like Elizabeth Taylor, which she does. Oh, okay. I think she looks like a cross between Liz Taylor and Natalie Wood. And Whereas be- they're like to Jerry, oh, this is the hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> I don't know if they were like that towards oh, okay. him, but, <laughs> but he was just Jerry. Just Jerry. Bear. <laughs> because of Karen's looks, Essie got Karen some child modeling gigs. So from a young age, Karen is being taught that looks are important and people notice you if you look a certain way. And her mom only nurtured that belief and not in a healthy way. Mm. I mean, this is a woman who only eats out of necessity. So... Keep that in mind. You're going to say like out of the garbage or something. Ew. (laughs) Despite not really having a choice in the matter, Karen seemed to take to performing pretty easily. She enjoyed it. Oh, good. Essie would take both her and her brother, Jerry. So Jerry did get to come along. Oh, great. He wasn't just locked away in an attic. (laughs) No, like he's the boy under the stairs. (laughs) Essie would take the both of them to plays and ballets. Mm -hmm. And the governess, June Yamaguchi, took Karen to her acting lessons before Karen even knew how to read. So the governess would read the scripts to Karen over and over until she'd memorized them. And that's how she learned her lines. And she began getting little acting parts at school and here and there around Chicago. And the attention was exciting. Not to mention that her home was a constant revolving door for some of the biggest celebrities in the world, Mm -hmm. thanks to her dad's work. Mm -hmm. 
Kevin and I went to her childhood home. We'll post the pics. We did. We didn't go in, but we were outside. Yes, we took some pictures. It's right by the theater where he and I met. Yeah. Which, who knew? Full circle, Kate. It is. On any given night, the Cubsnits might be sitting down to dinner with Joan Crawford, Judy Garland, or Clark Gable. Holy shit. Like, these are just the people that would, (laughs) like, regularly hang out at their house. The family took frequent trips to Los Angeles, where again, Karen was seeing the glitzy side of fame and fortune. It all seemed so glamorous to her. From what she could tell, being a celebrity meant getting into the finest restaurants in the city and having people shower you with gifts and sing your praises. That sounds wonderful. And it's all she knew. That's what she saw happening within her own home. So yes, Essie pushed her towards that career, but Karen also seemed to be a willing participant. Karen went to high school at Francis Parker, which is a top-rated private school in Chicago that literally costs thousands of dollars every year to attend. Is it still in existence? It is. Oh, wow. And there she performed in several school productions, but as one of her classmates put it, Karen wasn't all that interested in working on the craft of acting. She liked performing, but wasn't that good? According to this classmate. Was this classmate jealous? It doesn't seem that way. Okay. And it's just one classmate commenting, but this same student said that Karen didn't really care about academics either. She was more interested in shopping and partying and <sighs> hanging I out with her boyfriend. That's the thing. I mean, that's like any other high school girl to was me. a teenager. Yeah. Karen was beautiful, but unfortunately, she didn't feel that way because her mom put so much pressure Ew. on her to look quote unquote perfect. I was going to say that probably translated in like her own mother's like psychosis. Yes. Not psychosis. What's the word? Neuroses? Yes. All, it all sounds good to me. And this made Karen extremely insecure as it would anyone. She was described as having kind of a Marilyn Monroe figure, which women would kill for. She was five foot one and she had curves. And as you can probably guess, having curves was unacceptable to Essie Cupsnet. Essie criticized her daughter's weight and urged her to start taking diet pills. No. She was a teenager. You don't have to look like a skeleton. No. It's giving Judy Garland a little bit because her mom was the same way. After graduating high school, Karen attended a private college in Massachusetts, but dropped out after a year because she decided it was time for her to move to New York and take over Broadway. Oh, shit. And I think because of how she grew up and the clout that her dad had, she thought it was going to be easy to break in. And his name did open a lot of doors for her, but... Karen began seeing that as a catch-22 because she felt like agents and casting directors only saw her as Cup's daughter, and she complained that they couldn't recognize her talent because of that. And she came to this conclusion when she didn't book the first Broadway show she auditioned for. It's like, give it some time. It's like when I decided that I wanted to dance in the Nutcracker when I was like seven or eight years old. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, then I shall take ballet classes. And so my mom enrolled me in the local ballet school. Yes, I made her. (laughs) Um, And I went and I started doing the classes, learning the stuff. Yeah. A month into it, I was like, so when do we perform the Nutcracker? (laughs) And so then the... (laughs) The teachers made me aware. 
<laughs> that you have to study for years before mm-hmm. they'll even consider putting you in the show. Have you seen that documentary on Netflix? On Netflix? Flux. <laughs> on Netflix? <laughs> on Netflix about these kids training to try to get into the Nutcracker? No. Become, oh, it's fascinating. Well, I after 30 days and coming to that realization, I dropped out. Well... I think once Karen was out of her parents' house and on her own, she got hit with a dose of reality. Mm-hmm. I think she felt the Cupsnit name was automatically going to launch her career, but I don't know that she really had the talent to back it up. Mm. I don't know. I've only seen a couple of clips of her in small bit parts, so it's difficult to really give any kind of critique to her acting ability. And also actors can go on literally hundreds of auditions before booking that first one. Oh my one. God, for years. Oh yeah, absolutely. You just have to break in. Yeah, so I think she was thinking it was going to be easy and got hit with the truth. Nothing is. Because growing up, she'd only witnessed the fun parts of the business, the right. glamorous parts. Right. And now she had to put in the work and she was not prepared. The more rejection she faced from auditions, the more insecure she became. So it went from... I'm not getting work because people see me as Cup's daughter to I'm not getting work because I'm not pretty enough. And the thing is, she was beautiful. Like, I'm going to post the pictures. And when you see them, you're going to be like, she's gorgeous. It was all psychological. This poor girl is 19 years old and she's she's just insecure. She's got she, she's got a lot of growing up to do. Yeah. While in New York, she briefly changed her name from Roberta Lynn Cupsonet to Lynn Roberts. I think she wanted to try and make it without her dad's Ooh, name. Fair enough. But that didn't lead to sudden fame either, as she quickly realized. Hope. She was like, wait, I like the doors that are open to me because of the Cupsonet name. So she changed it back. She referred to her time in New York as a low point in her life. And it was while she was there that she got her first plastic surgery oh no what did she do she had her chin reshaped oh chin shaving but this did not lead to broadway roles as she had hoped she also gained some weight while in new york so when she returned to chicago to visit her parents oh essie critiqued her harshly karen took more and more diet pills and other prescription drugs like sleep aids and antidepressants and she was hooked She was also ready to move on from New York because she just wasn't making it there the way she thought she would. With the help of her parents and family friend, Jerry Lewis. Oh, yes. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Karen, Karen headed west in November of 1960. Jerry Lewis offered her a bit part in his film, The Ladies' Man, shooting in Los Angeles. Hey, hey. And the Cupsonets arranged for Essie's mother, Dory, which I think is the cutest name in the world. I just watched Finding Nemo again recently. Did you? Dory. Yeah. (laughs) So they arranged for Essie's mother, Dory, Karen's grandmother, to travel with her. The two of them were going to live together so that Dory could look after Karen. I think because her parents were worried about her, one, being so far from home, and two, because she'd been so miserable on her own in New York. They also arranged for family friend Marsha Ross, who at the time was married to actor Mark Goddard, to sort of take Karen under her wing. Marsha, who was around three years older than Karen, 
was the daughter of famed publicist Henry Rogers. I almost said Harry, and that's why that sounded weird. There was actually three H's at the beginning of his Henry Rogers, thank you. Who co-founded the PR firm Rogers & Cowan, which is where Ronnie Chasen worked in the 80s. We did an episode on her a while back. Everything's connected. that's right. So the Cupsnits enlisted Marsha to introduce her to the right people. Basically, Cup and Essie were trying to hand L.A. to their daughter on a silver platter. And although they had nothing but good intentions, it does seem that Karen was used to being given everything as opposed to having to work for it. So when she didn't get a part or whatever, she didn't really have the tools to deal with that rejection. So Marsha, the family friend, goes to pick up Karen and Dory from the airport when they get to L.A. And Karen comes off that plane Wearing this like huge coat with a fur collar and fur cuffs. She's got like 47 suitcases in Uh. tow and she's like, here I am, Hollywood. This is also when she changed her name from Roberta to Karen. I think it was her way of reinventing herself. She was like, new city, new name. And I I just want to say here on IMDb, she has early credits listing her name as Tammy Windsor. These are not her credits, and she is not Tammy Windsor, but someone mistakenly put that on there, and several others have just repeated it. She was never Tammy Windsor. Her first screen credit was The Ladies' Man, which was released in 1961. So she filmed her role in The Ladies' Man in 1960, and when she saw herself on the big screen, she didn't like what she saw. It only added to her insecurities. I have a little clip here of Karen doing a radio interview from June 24th, 1961. Let me pull it up here. Yeah, that first time when you see yourself on camera. It's rough. When you see yourself walking and talking and acting and, oh, it was just horrible. Anyway, I'm trying to get used to it, but I don't think you're ever really satisfied. So that was Karen talking to the interviewer about how she felt about herself on screen. And shortly after The Ladies' Man was released, Karen had another plastic surgery. This time she got a nose job. Oh, God. See, this is how people start to look like mountain lions trying to squeeze through a fence. Oh. Okay. I wish everyone could have seen Kevin's face just now because he just did an impression of it. And it was, yep, that's it. That one right there. (laughs) Karen actually woke up during the operation. Oh. She had begun keeping a journal in LA and she wrote about the experience saying, awake during operation, agony, felt needles cutting everything. Oh my God. That is something that freaks me out. I Waking never want up that to happen. During a surgery, no thank you. In another journal entry, She talks about a night where she went to see Eddie Fisher perform. Her parents had flown out to L.A. and they took Karen to a show Eddie was doing because, of course, they knew Eddie Fisher. And afterwards, they went backstage to talk to him. And Eddie told her she looked like Liz, as in Elizabeth Taylor, who he was married to at the time. And he said when he spotted her in the audience, it took his breath away for a second. So in her journal, Karen wrote, Today, Warren Beatty told me I was pretty, and Eddie Fisher said I looked like Liz. And that made her feel great. I I have the same things written in my journal. As like uh, aspirations? No, it happened. Mm. It gave her a little boost of confidence, which if two major celebrities told me I looked pretty, (laughs) I'd be like, fuck yeah, thank you. I would probably be like, stop, no. Keep going. Don't say anymore. (laughs) Jonathan Van Ness told me he liked my beard when I met him. 
Wait, you met Jonathan Van I Ness? did, yeah. The chorus performed at, he was uh, doing something for Chicago Ideas Week at the oh. music box, like a talk. Oh, cool. And so we opened uh, for him with Seasons of Love. <gasps> nice. And yeah, he came into the room where we were and said hi <gasps> and hugged every single person. Oh my goodness. And he like gave me a hug and said, I like your beard. <gasps> I would have cherished that moment. I, I mean, do. I guess I have to grow a beard for that to happen, but <laughs> it could be hard. We can make it happen, Kate. I think so, because the mole on my chin has got some hairs. Okay. So just keep them going. The confidence that Karen got from these compliments from Eddie and Warren Beatty was fleeting, because soon her insecurities took over again. She did start to book more substantial work, including a guest spot in an episode of The Donna Reed Show, a recurring role in a few episodes of a series called Hawaiian Eye, Mm -hmm. and a recurring role in The Gertrude Berg Show. But her success fed into her lack of confidence because she'd see herself on the screen and she wouldn't like what she saw, so she would take more and more diet pills. It was just like this horrible cycle. And she kept meticulous records of her weight gain and loss in her journal. January 23rd, 1962, 121 pounds. I look too heavy, yet everyone calls me beautiful. Like she thought she was heavy at 121 pounds. That is tiny. That's tiny, teeny. February 1st, 117 pounds. Everyone noticed my weight loss. February 5th, 125 pounds. I stayed in bed. Eight. I feel so draggy and tired. February 15th, 121 pounds. Took pills. Looked gorgeous. Yikes. At the end of that February, the show Karen was working on, the Gertrude Berg show, got canceled. Meanwhile, she's now taking pills regularly. They're all over the house. But remember, she was living with her grandmother. And she didn't want Dory knowing what that she was taking all these drugs, so she hid the pills in her hamper. But one day, Dory went to do some laundry, and she opens the hamper and finds all these pill bottles. So she confronts Karen about it, and she's like, you're on pills? What the hell? And unlike Essie, Dory disapproved of the drugs. And it definitely caused friction between Karen and her grandmother to the point that Dory moved out and went back to Chicago. She was like, I can't take it anymore. In the E! True Hollywood story on Karen, Essie is interviewed. And when she talks about her mother moving out of Karen's apartment because of the pills, Essie says, quote, to that generation, that was pretty horrible. Like she's saying to Dory's generation, taking diet pills was a bad thing. Essie, it is a bad thing. You're the one that got Karen hooked on them. Like she doesn't see anything wrong with it. Clearly her daughter is not well and she's only enabling her to distract. That's one thing about her story that is striking. It seems like no one intervenes to try and help her. Like when a young woman whose frontal lobe isn't even fully developed yet is going in for these plastic surgeries, no one stops to say, wait, what's going on here? Like, you know she didn't have the money for those surgeries, especially when she was in New York. She was living off her parents' money. So her parents are paying for that. Mm -hmm. And her mom is encouraging the diet pills. The grandmother, who moved to L.A. because she's supposed to watch over her, she's there when she gets the nose job. Like, no one stepped in to say, let's take a step back. Essie had to have been raised a certain way, Mm -hmm. right? And in a certain environment to 
have those beliefs. And do I don't think? know a lot about Essie's parents other sure. than that her dad owned some drug stores. That's where they got their money from. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he was, I think he made his money as a rum runner during Prohibition. Wow. And so I, that's really all I know about them. Sure. So I'm just, I'm just wondering, like, I know we don't know the answer, sure. but it had to, that mindset comes from somewhere. I mean, patterns repeat within families. That's so. the thing. And I understand that there's a larger societal pressure as well. But, you know, I'll just put that out there. Yeah. No, I, I get it. And we're talking about the early 60s. Pills were not uncommon oh in Hollywood. Mm. And that's the only reason I can think of that would make people turn the other way. Like, what's a few diet pills? Everyone does it. It's kind of like Hollywood's obsession with Ozempic right now. Like, oh, that's no. what it made me think of. Yeah. So now Karen is a drug-addicted, insecure young woman on her own in Hollywood. Not a great formula. That doesn't usually end up in a good no place. In the summer of 1962, Karen was cast as Annie Sullivan in a stage production of The Miracle Worker. And it sounds like she did a great job with it. She's finally getting noticed for her talent, something she'd always longed for. But of course, she was still deeply insecure. And this became very apparent on a questionnaire that her PR agent had given her to fill out. Her agent was like, hey, we need some info for your bio. Just answer these questions for us. And it was things like, where did you train? What are some interesting facts about you? Like that kind of thing. So Karen said that she had gone to Wellesley College and had taken acting classes at Harvard, that she had an IQ of 148 and weighed just 106 pounds. None of those things were true. I took an online IQ test recently, and it it was a low score. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't think I'm as smart as I think I am. <laughs> I think you're a genius. Uh, well, maybe not well- judging by that response. <laughs> it gives you a sense of what Karen worried about. Like, she's clearly worried that people won't think that she's smart enough or thin mm-hmm. enough. Because think of the bios that you see in Playbills today. No one is listing their IQ or their weight. I think we should bring that back. I don't know about that. (laughs) But those were the things that were important to her, even though she was lying about them. That's strange. And her repeated drug use was starting to take a toll on her body. In a journal entry dated October 1st, 1962, she wrote, Woke up feeling slightly nauseous and groggy. Hallucinations, inferiority complex, aching limbs, stiff neck, surely liver damage resulted from pills. A week later, on October 8th, she wrote, Cried myself to sleep. No, honey. Then for the next month, it's just a bunch of drawings, mostly of eyes. She drew a lot of eyes in her notebook, just like scribbles. Then on November 10th, Karen was arrested for shoplifting. What the fuck? She stole two books, a sweater, and a pair of pants. She was ordered to pay a fine and received three years probation. And to me, it is just a cry for help. Three years probation? She didn't need to steal. She had her family's money. but She, she is... did that to feel something. Like, people do yeah. do things like that to, you know, t- touch on some need that they have internally. And it made me think of Winona Ryder. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't really know much about her case with that. Ooh, would that be a good horrorwood episode? Maybe. So clearly, Karen is not well. No. Mentally, physically, there's a lot going on. That I can't imagine how that feels. It, it must be an awful feeling. Yeah. 
The following day, the day after she was arrested, November 11th, she wrote, Continuous hysteria, deepest depression ever. Honey. Then, Karen booked a small role on a TV series called Wide Country, which starred Earl Holloman and Andy Prine. In the episode she appears in, James Kahn is also a guest star. And he's more or less an unknown at the time. It was one of his first acting jobs, too. And Karen actually had a slightly more extensive resume than James Kahn did at that point. I just thought it was interesting that they were in that episode together. She had a small role, which was filmed at the beginning of December 1962. And on December 4th, she wrote in a journal entry, Andy Prine, doll. Andy Prine was a ladies' man. He was 26 at the time. He had a little bit of celebrity going for him, being the lead in a TV show. So he's starting to get noticed, and women loved him. And that love was reciprocated. Oh, shit. Like all the women that were crazy for Andy, Karen was no different. She instantly fell for him. He was tall, he was handsome, he was charming, and she was smitten. Me too. Mm. Just by that description, Kate. <laughs> Andy said he was immediately attracted to her and when he when he saw her. He said she was so beautiful and there was an intelligence about her that was immediately apparent. On December 9th, in her journal, Karen wrote, Andy. December 11th, Andy. December 12th, look thin. December 13th, Andy. It's dark. Every day from December 18th through the 22nd, she wrote Andy's name. And it wasn't like... Like that schoolgirl, like, oh, Andy, like she's writing his name. She's keeping a record of all the times that they're hanging out. So every time that she wrote Andy's name, it's because she spent the day with him. That's crazy. I saw a TikTok recently of this girl who got her boyfriend's name tattooed across her forehead. No. Her entire forehead. No. And guess what name it was, Kate? Oh, no, what? Kevin. Of course. <laughs> oh, that girl's going to have some regrets. From the time they met, they were spending almost every day together. Then Christmas came, and Karen flew back to Chicago to be with her family, but she stayed in contact with Andy over the phone. Then on January 17, 1963, Karen's episode of Wide Country aired. Earlier that day, she and Andy met for lunch, and she described him as being attentive, which made her feel good. But that feeling didn't last. Because when she watched her episode later that day, she found that her part had been edited down to barely more than an extra, and she felt depressed. She was becoming more and more attached to Andy, but he did not feel the same way. Basically, he liked hanging out with her and he liked hooking up with her, but he liked hanging out and hooking up with other Everyone. women as well. Karen's entire world began to revolve around Andy, and he could sense that, and he began to pull away. His attitude didn't exactly do any favors for Karen's anxiety or self-esteem, so she did what she always did when she was feeling depressed— she pills. took more pills. On at least one occasion, Andy accompanied her to the doctor to get more pills, and he later said he didn't realize how deep her addiction was and how lonely she was. And I can't really blame him, because we don't know how much of that side of herself she revealed to him. I People think, are really good at hiding that yes, stuff. Yes, and I think she was, oh, I, I, that's my next sentence. I think she was good at hiding some of the darker aspects of herself, because even her own family said they didn't know how troubled she really was. 
From what I can tell, Karen was depending on Andy to give her the validation that she craved. Almost like he was another one of the drugs that she was addicted to. Kate, did you write that? I did. Yes, queen. When he showed her attention, she was on a high. Yeah. But when he was distant, it was like she was going through withdrawals. Mm -hmm. And when she was feeling down, she tended to eat more. And then she'd feel guilty and take more pills. Mm. And here's the thing. She was seeing multiple doctors who were all prescribing her different things. That's how she was able to get all these drugs. She'd hop around to different doctors every couple of months. And I'm sure she's telling different stories to get whatever she needs. Mm -hmm. And later I'll go into detail of everything Everything she was was taking. Okay. Oh, man. Karen was deeply unwell. She stopped caring about acting. She'd bomb her auditions. She did book small guest appearances on a couple of TV shows, but her mental health is clearly in trouble. She'd shop to make herself feel better. She'd eat to make herself feel better. But then, of course, the eating made her feel worse. And to her credit, she did reportedly try therapy, though I couldn't find much about that. And despite Andy being open with her that he wanted space, that he didn't want to be exclusive, she couldn't accept that. I will say this, Andy is sometimes made to look like the villain in Karen's story, but I don't see him that way. Did he do everything perfectly? No. No. But I also think from everything I've read that he was honest with her. I think he was upfront about wanting to date around and not be exclusive. And I think she thought eventually he would come around and want only her, but that's not what happened. Mm -hmm. Karen began stalking Andy. If she heard he was going to be at a certain party, she'd show up and spy on him. She wanted to know who he was with, who he talked to. And sometimes she'd confront him if she saw him at a party or a club or whatever. And he would tell her very clearly, leave me alone. I've been there. I've been a woman in my 20s who is obsessed with a guy. It's not good. To everyone that I dated in my 20s, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but like, I've been there too, Kate, especially like when I was in college. I remember, yeah. and just, you know, coming out as gay and like figuring that out. And then you don't know the culture and you don't mm-hmm. know how to talk to people because you haven't been socialized mm-hmm. in the necessary way to do so. Yeah. I stalked a lot of people. I mean, listen. <laughs> listen, a- Adrian, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I'm going to say it now. Um, I was a freshman and I was on the school newspaper and everything that he was a part of, I featured so I could interview him. Ah, oh, Kevin. Oh, Kate. You know, I I even went, he was a dancer and I even went to modern dance class to like, to like get in there and I had to leave because I couldn't do it and I fell on the floor Oh no! um, and I farted really loud. (laughs) No, and I just kind of crawled out of the room and never went back. Oh, Kevin. Oh, no. Adrian is out there somewhere. I'm sure he's happy and having a wonderful life. Probably. You know, good for you, sweetheart. You know what? I think about (laughs) all the guys that I dated. All the guys that I dated in my 20s. I was a mess. I was this angsty, like, insecure young adult who just didn't know who I was and I just hadn't figured things out yet and it's a rough time and so to it to an extent I can kind of understand, understand Karen it. yeah I know that I know what that feels like to be in that mindset right on June 21st 1963 Karen found out Andy was seeing a couple of other girls at the time and she wrote in her journal that she was in hysterics 
June 27th, she wrote, Getting my self-respect back. I'm stronger. Hey! Then just a couple of days later, she and Andy hooked up again. God damn it. And this is what I mean when I say he didn't do everything perfectly because he continued to have a sexual relationship with her even after telling her to leave him alone. So he See, did send some mixed messages. That's shit that you can't do and that men need to understand. Well, men and, and women. I was going to say, and anybody. women too, yeah. Like, the physical relationship is always going to spark some kind of feeling, yes. right? It doesn't, I mean, I feel like cer- certain people are good at, or not good at kind of keeping that. Like compartmentalizing. Compartmentalizing. It can be done, of course. But when you're in it and you're dealing with all of this stuff emotionally, it's like, yeah. it almost makes you more prone to kind of having those feelings. You know what I mean? And everyone, like, they're all in their 20s. You know, it's just like you're young. And you're a mess anyway. And you're in Hollywood oh. and you're, you know, it's. Just so, there's a lot going on there. I feel for her though. I do. Like, I get. I understand where she's coming from. The issues. The yep. You know it. It's just. It's a bad cycle. Yeah. At the beginning of July, Karen weighed herself, and she was 134 pounds, which she thought was too big. Oh my god. She said she was going to starve herself. No. She went to a new doctor, got more pills. One week later, she went back to that doctor, and she had lost. 10 pounds in just that one week she felt her figure was looking better that day she wrote in her journal that andy has said to her quote it excites me to hurt you a little i don't want to analyze his statement too much here because we don't know the context but it's a pretty fucked up thing to say it shouldn't excite you to hurt another person were they into was there like some maybe not anything that i've read so i don't know what that's about Despite him being annoyed by her needy by her neediness when it came to him, I think he liked that she wanted him so badly. He liked that women threw themselves at him, and he admits that. At that time in his life, he was on top of the world. But the very next day, July 9th, Karen learned some devastating news. Devastating to her. She was pregnant. Duh, fuck. She wrote, "Like a nightmare, this can't be happening to me." July 10th. Oh, God, I don't know what to do. Called Dr. Estrada. July 11th. Called Dr. Estrada again. Getting used to the idea. Karen didn't want her parents to find out she was pregnant. And Andy didn't want anything to do with any of it. It's 1963, which means it is illegal in the United States to get an abortion. So with nowhere else to turn, she asked her friends Marcia and Mark Goddard to drive her to Tijuana. Oh, no, 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 no. The whole experience was extremely traumatic. Mark Goddard is the one who paid for the abortion. Andy didn't even pay for it. And Mark described the experience as, like when he walked into the the room with her, a butcher, newspaper on the floor, a light bulb hanging. That's horrific. I cannot imagine. No, 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 no. I can't. I would be like, nope, forget it. On the drive back to L.A., Karen almost bled to death in the car. Oh, my fucking God. Yeah. Once back home, she was glad to be done and yeah. relieved the whole thing was over. And even though Andy didn't want to be there to hold the hand of the woman he had impregnated while she was going through this risky and life-altering procedure, he did make her some soup. On July 25th, she wrote, quote, I'm so happy. How long can it last? The answer is not long because Andy was seeing someone else at the time. So when his new fling was over at his house, 
Karen would hide in the hedges and spy on them through the window. Mm-hmm. By August, it seemed she had finally had it with Andy's indifference toward her. She wrote, quote, Really mad at the son of a bitch. For the first time, I really dislike Andy. He shows no consideration or understanding, and he humiliates me. How dare he not make one concession or show any feelings? So humiliated by Andy's lack of interest. Feel like I'm about to explode. Eating too much. And somewhere along the way, though I don't have an exact date, Karen got even more plastic surgery. No. Nothing against people wanting to get plastic surgery. You do you. but. The thing is, she's so young. At this point, she's 22, and her reasons for wanting to do it are coming from an extreme place of insecurity. Insecurity. But no one intervenes, at least not successfully, that I've seen anywhere. Then late that summer, some pretty weird and scary stuff started happening. Karen started receiving threatening notes that looked like ransom notes, like the letters were cut out of magazines. And they didn't make a whole lot of sense. One of them read, quote, you are the certain girl to die. What the fuck? And another read, forget fame and romance with aging Glenn Ford. Devil must kill you. What? Like creepy shit. And why is Glenn Ford in there? Who knows? Who I, Yeah. Who's Glenn Ford? He was an actor. Oh. And, and he was in circles. That she in the, ran yeah. in? Yeah. Okay. So she's understandably freaked out. And who does she call? Andy. Andy. I almost said Aiden. I don't know. No, he's, no there's wrong. no Aiden in this story. That's sex in the city. Hey. She's like, Andy, what do you make of these who would do this? And he said, that's really freaky. I also received oh, similar shit. notes made with letters mm-hmm. cut out of magazines. One read, are you going to Latin America or Florida? Let your beautiful virgin become lonesome and so easy to make. Bet K-cup tastes as good as it looks. Ew. Blow. When I read that in my research, all I could think about was those coffee pods. Keurigs. Yeah. K-cups. K-cups. That's neither here nor there. And that's all just on one note. Like, that's so many letters to cut out. Who takes that much time? Someone crazy. The note doesn't even make sense. Another one he received read, You may die without nobody. Winner of loneliness wants death until one someone special cares. And the note had been taped to his front door. So several weird, creepy notes talking about death. And then there was one that read, Want your hot body. Only Tampax will stop your fertility problem. What? I don't understand. This is insane. Andy was genuinely frightened. So he took the notes down to the police station. Because he's seeing these as death threats. And he wanted the cops to give him a permit for a gun. But the police said... This isn't unusual for someone with a little bit of celebrity. Just forget about it. I mean, the crazies come out. Which is wild to me that he goes into a police station, shows them threatening notes, says he's scared, and they're just like, hmm, you're a little famous. Par for the course. Common. It's all too common even today. He said he put more security measures in place both at his house and Karen's apartment. I couldn't find what these were. My guess would be new locks and that sort of thing. Sure. Neither Karen nor Andy received any more threats that summer. And in September, Karen moved out of her apartment that she had once shared with her grandmother and into a new apartment in West Hollywood at 1227.5 North Sweetser Avenue. Weho! Isn't that like where all the gays are? Yep, sure is. This building was uh, 
known to be known to house a lot of movie people. It was kind of like all the stars, like just some up and coming, up and coming. Yeah. In September, she booked a guest starring role on the TV show Perry Mason. Oh shit! Yeah, which is Perry big. Mason. Did you watch the new uh, reiter- the reiteration? I didn't. It's so good. Katie. Is it? Oh my god, you have to. I think you'll really like it. Okay. Unfortunately, though, Karen wouldn't get to see herself on the screen in that show because she was dead before it aired. In the fall of 1963, Karen was still so consumed by her feelings for Andy Prine. She did more stalking, more spying. On November 4th, Andy brought a girl home. So Karen snuck into his house and hid in his attic to spy on them. She's becoming unhinged. Yeah, that's taking it to another level. Her journal entry that evening says, I hid an attic, then sat outside in cold for two or three hours. Wish I were dead. On November 8th, she went to see one of her doctors, Dr. Kroger, to get more pills, and she cried in his office. On November 9th, she wrote, Eating all day and night. November 10th, Can't stand it. I'm losing reality. The next day, she called Andy. And they had sex. Four days later, she went back to her doctor. She got more pills and she felt happy and up, she said. She wore a pink skirt that day and got admiring looks. And that made her feel good. Then on November 22nd, the world turned upside down when JFK was assassinated. As soon as Andy heard the news, he called Karen because he said he knew she would be upset. The two of them decided to meet up with Andy's friend and co-star on Wide Country, Earl Holloman. And Earl was like, let's just get out of town for a bit. Let's get away. So Earl and his girlfriend, along with Andy and Karen, went to Palm Springs the next day, Saturday the 23rd. And it sounds like they had a really nice weekend together. I think Andy and Karen comforted each other, if you know what I'm saying. Andy said their time there together was sweet, and they parted as, quote, friends. But the following Monday, back in L.A., Karen wrote in her journal that she ate to oblivion. Cup and Essie urged Karen to come back to Chicago for Thanksgiving, but she declined. Instead, on the evening before Thanksgiving, she joined her friends Marcia and Mark Goddard for dinner at their home in Beverly Hills. She was supposed to be there at 6.30, but she was an hour late. I'd be so annoyed. Yeah. She explained that she was late because someone had left a baby abandoned on her doorstep earlier that day. And this, of course, upset her. She'd been spending the earlier part of the evening trying to make sure the baby was in the proper authority's hands and taken care of. She's crying and she can't stop talking about Andy. She's saying he's seeing someone else. I just want him back. How do I get him back? She told them she'd been seeing a therapist and even the therapist told her that she was in bad shape. I really feel for the Goddards here because they are a young couple. They're both in their 20s. They've been enlisted to help this girl out. It's the holidays. They've prepared a lovely meal and they open their home to her because she's refused to go home to her parents' house. And what does she do? She shows up late and just sits there and cries the whole time. And it's like, and you and I have talked about this. It's like, there's only so many times you can listen to someone lament over the same old thing. And I probably sound harsh here, but the Goddards were not 
therapist. They've already gone above and beyond. Well, you know, and in those situations, like it's you can listen, you can, you know, offer advice if Mm -hmm. it's warranted or if you're asked for it. But at some point, there has to be accountability on on yourself yes because you you the you know if you don't want help or you don't want to fix it or make the changes then people aren't gonna keep comforting you right they're gonna start to turn away right and it was always just this same sad song when it came to karen and the goddards kept telling her you've got to move on karen didn't even eat at this dinner she just sort of pushed her food around on her plate And Marcia and Mark noticed that her voice sounded kind of odd, and she was just acting strange, and her pupils were constricted. They could tell she was on something. She stayed at their house less than an hour before leaving in a cab. She said she'd call them when she got home, but she never did. They didn't think too much about it. She'd been upset, was clearly not at full capacity, probably just needed to sleep it off. But when they still hadn't heard from her by Saturday, a full three days later... They began to worry. Mm -hmm. It was around 7 p.m. and they were getting ready to go out for the night, but they had a bad feeling. So they immediately drove over to Karen's apartment. And the way the apartment building was laid out, it was 18 units on two floors. Karen's unit was on the second floor and the doors to each unit were outside. Mm -hmm. So you, you don't have to go into a building to get into the apartments. The stairs to the second floor were outside. And as the Goddards made their way up the stairs towards Karen's unit... Mark said he could sense the heaviness of death. Oh, man. They got to her door, and surprisingly, it was unlocked. So they went right on in. The lights were off, but the TV was on low. A bowl of cigarettes was turned over on the floor, along with a coffee pot that appeared to have been knocked over, and there was also a lamp that was overturned. They could see a figure lying on the couch, so Marcia says, Karen, Karen, wake up. She thinks she's passed out. She's maybe taken too many pills. But Karen didn't budge. Marcia turned on a nearby lamp and screamed when she saw the decomposing body of 22-year-old Karen lying completely naked. According to an article in Chicago Magazine, Karen was found lying on her back. But I read in another source that she was found lying on her side with flecks of blood on her face and pillow And then another source says that she was lying on her stomach. (laughs) I don't know why they are all conflicting reports. That's really strange. Very strange. Marcia and Mark ran outside and began began yelling suicide, suicide. It appeared to them that Karen had OD'd. They called the authorities. The authorities called Karen's family back in Chicago. A flurry of law enforcement and emergency crews and the media descended on Karen's apartment. They checked with neighbors to see if they knew anything. Many were out of town for the holiday. The guy that lived downstairs from Karen answered the door when the cop arrived. They informed him she'd been found dead and asked if he'd seen anything, but he said he hadn't. Investigators found 13 pill bottles in Karen's home consisting of diet pills and antidepressants. And they also found a note. It's not dated, so it's impossible to know when she wrote it. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's quite long, but I'm going to read part of it. It's addressed for me, she writes. I feel self-conscious about this, like I'm going to have to get approval on it eventually. Approval it is, or you're doomed to insignificance. Everything I've done, I do for approval, knowing this'll get them, or they'll love me for this. I'm no good. I'm not really that pretty. 
My figure's fat and will never be the way my mother wants it. I won't let it be what she wants. How stupid. I want to be slim and she loves me and wants me to be slim. Why must I be so alone? Why does my image of me have to be so aesthetic and perfect? What's the use of living with nothing to believe in, have faith in? What happens to me? Or am I Andy? Why doesn't he want me? Why? This next sentence is strange, and it makes me think she wrote it before JFK was assassinated. She says, I like President Kennedy, Bertrand Russell, Peter O'Toole, Albert Finney. I just care about now. Who gives a shit about 10 years from now? There won't be any with Andy. Maybe that's it. If only I had a reason. No one needs me or cares to need me. The Goddards informed authorities this was Irv Kupsnitz's daughter. Law enforcement phoned him, but he and Essie were in Deerfield at the opening of a Sarah Lee plant of all things and couldn't be reached. Sarah Lee. The news had already hit the airwaves, and it was Irv's editor at the Sun-Times, Russ Stewart, who got in touch with him and told him his daughter had died. At a Sarah Lee plant. Like, I can't even imagine that's how you find that news out. Irv and Essie raced back to their home on Wellington Avenue, which would have been at least a 30-minute drive. So they had all that time to think about what had happened. By the time they got home, their place was already filled with friends and family. Essie passed out. She was in complete shock. And Irv just went to a corner in the dining room and cried his eyes out. Meanwhile, back in L.A., the coroner's investigator arrived. They carried Karen's body down the stairs of her apartment building and took her to the L.A. County morgue where Dr. Harold Cade performed the autopsy. Word going around was it was an overdose. So imagine everyone's surprise when the following morning on December 1st, Dr. Harold Cade announced this was no suicide. This was a murder. Oh, fuck. Citing her death as asphyxia by manual strangulation. (gasps) Dr. Cade estimated she died sometime late Wednesday or early Thursday morning. Mm -hmm. According to him, Karen had visible signs of neck trauma and her hyoid bone was broken. Mm. Your hyoid bone is located in the front of your neck. It sits at the base of your tongue between your lower jaw and your voice box. And it basically helps you move your tongue around, make sounds, breathe. The hyoid bone is very well protected where it's located in the neck, which makes fractures to it extremely rare. I've heard of that before, the hyoid bone. A fractured hyoid bone suggests either strangulation or some other type of neck trauma resulting from a sports injury or a car accident or a hanging. It takes somewhere between 35 and 46 pounds of pressure oh my God. to fracture a hyoid bone, <gasps> which again is partly why this type of injury is so rare. Yeah. Karen's injuries included, quote, compression fracture, left side of hyoid bone with deep, with deep soft tissue hemorrhage of neck, left side of thyroid gland, thyroid cartilage, base of tongue, epiglottis, and larynx. According to initial reports, There was no immediate evidence of sexual assault, but they were going to run more tests. However, I haven't been able to find any sources stating that she was sexually assaulted. But what's also weird is I haven't been able to find a toxicology report, which given the amount of drugs that were in her apartment and the fact that the Goddards both assumed she had died by suicide, it seems like there would be some mention of a toxicology report somewhere. But I read that once Dr. K declared it a homicide, 
they didn't perform a toxicology report. They didn't feel it was necessary. Well, I mean, it it is necessary. Like that's a major mistake if that's the case. And the fact that I have, and and it would be available. This was the sixties. Like we would be able to find it, but I, the fact that I haven't been able to find anything Mm -hmm. tells me they probably did not run one. Mm. So let's talk about all the drugs Karen was on. Modaline or Modaline, a powerful MAOI used to treat depression, highly addictive. Amvacel, which is, which is an appetite suppressant. Milltown, which is a tranquilizer used to treat anxiety. It was made popular in the 50s by Hollywood because stars realized taking the drug didn't knock them out like barbiturates did. And celebrities often pass the drug around like candy at parties. Oh my God. They drank Miltinis, cocktails <gasps> that combined the drug with alcohol. It's no. very common. Oh, that sounds dangerous. She was also taking thyroid extract, which was used for weight loss and is considered unsafe. And disoxin, which is essentially the FDA's legal label. For methamphetamine. Oh, my God. It's highly addictive. It's used to treat obesity and ADHD. And its side effects include increased anxiety, paranoia, heart rate and blood pressure. It raises the body temperature and can lead to heart attack, stroke, or organ failure caused by overheating. She was taking meth. She's taking a combination of drugs that directly conflict with each other because she's got uppers and downers in there and she's abusing them all. It would be easy to assume the drugs had finally caught up to her, and that is the reason she died. But the broken hyoid bone throws that theory for a loop. So let's retrace Karen's steps the night she died. That Wednesday, before heading to the Goddard's house for dinner, Karen called Andy around 6 p.m. She told him a baby had been abandoned at her doorstep that day, and she was very upset about it. We don't know what Andy said to her in response or what else was discussed between the two, but we do know that Andy had a date that night, and it wasn't with Karen. When Karen arrived at the Goddards an hour late, she was crying over the whole abandoned baby thing and, of course, over her unrequited feelings for Andy Prine. When Andy and the Goddards told investigators about Karen's mention of an abandoned baby, the police looked into it but they never received any reports of a baby being abandoned at Karen's apartment building. None of the other tenants had seen a baby, and the whole story simply wasn't true. Weird. I was going to say that when you brought that up, I was like, I don't... Yeah. That, that's a little too out there. Yeah. When Karen left the Goddards and went home that evening, it wasn't long before her friend, writer Edward Rubin, showed up. They talked for a while before Karen felt like she needed to go for a walk around the block. Then around 9.30 p.m., while out on her walk, she ran into an actor friend of hers, Robert Hathaway. Reuben and Hathaway were mutual friends of Andy's, and that's how they knew Karen. Mm -hmm. According to those two men, the three of them sat on the couch and watched TV. Karen offered them cake and coffee, which they accepted, and then Karen began to doze off on the couch. They watched the Danny Kay show, which ended at 11, and Karen was going to head to bed, so Reuben and Hathaway left. They said they'd turn the TV down and walked out, locking the door behind them. Then sometime between 11.30 p.m. and midnight, Andy and Karen spoke on the phone. He was home from his date, and the call was regarding, quote, a lover's quarrel he and Karen were having. Not long after this phone call, Karen died according to the estimated time of death given by the coroner. Andy Prime was suspect number one. Of course. He was the boyfriend. 
But we've got a couple of other people to look at now. We've got Reuben and Hathaway. I was going to say, yeah, two two guys. Mm-hmm. All three men agreed to take polygraph tests, but the results were inconclusive. Andy was like, well, I have proof I wasn't involved. Look at these weird-ass notes that were sent to me and Karen. And he handed over the death threats oh, that right, were made right. from the magazine yep. clippings. Mm-hmm. So investigators sent the notes to the crime lab, and they did find a fingerprint underneath one of the pieces of tape that was used. And that fingerprint belonged to Karen Cupsonet. She had sent those notes to Andy and to herself. And I can only assume it was to try and get Andy's attention. attention. Like, wait, you got a note too? So did I. Oh my God, what oh, do we do? no, that's, that's deranged. It's bad. Investigators even went back to thoroughly search Karen's place Ugh. and they found the magazines that she had used to cut out the letters. Yeah. Oh, shit. So they start checking around with Karen's neighbors to see if anyone heard or saw anything unusual on Wednesday night. But most of the tenants in the building were out of town for the holiday. But when Deputy Jim Boyer and Deputy Sam Miller reached the apartment at 1223 and a quarter North Sweetser Avenue, a woman answered. And she had an interesting story to tell. She said there was a guy that lived directly below Karen's unit. Remember, Karen was on the second floor. Mm -hmm. This guy was on the first And this guy was named David Lang. This woman, this tenant, said that on the evening of Sunday, December 1st, so after Karen's body has been removed and it's been ruled a homicide, Mm -hmm. David walked into her apartment, the female tenant's apartment, totally uninvited, and for whatever reason told her that on Friday night, he had gone up to Karen's apartment. He had tried the doorknob and noticed it was unlocked, but he didn't go in. He told her that on Saturday night, the 30th, when Karen was discovered, a cop showed up, but he didn't tell him the exact truth. That's all this woman knew, and the deputies thanked her and were like, we should probably go talk to this David Lane guy. They went to his unit to look for him, but he didn't answer. So they stuck a note on his door telling him to call the sheriff's homicide department. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, a separate set of officers received another tip about Lange. A woman, stating she was a friend of Lang's, said Lang had called her on December 1st and told her that he knew Karen and said, I killed her, you know. What? So who exactly is who this guy? Who the fuck is D. Lang? D. Lang, David Lang, was the 27-year-old younger brother of actress Hope Lang. Hope already had a nice career going for herself at this point, appearing in movies such as Bus Stop with Marilyn Monroe and Peyton Place with Lana Turner. But David was struggling to find his place in the movie business. He did odd jobs in the industry here and there. He was basically a gopher, mainly getting jobs through contacts of his sister. He did manage to get two producing credits, but both were working for his sister's husband. It's not like he worked his way up in Hollywood. His brother-in-law was just like, here, here's a job and you can have the title of producer. And before I knew anything about this case, Matt and I watched one of the films that turns out Lang quote unquote produced. It's a movie called Clute. Have you read it? I mean, have you seen it? That sounds familiar. I hated it. Lang's sister was close friends with Natalie Wood. Ah. And David and Natalie were actually dating at the time of Karen's death. David Lang and Natalie Wood? Yes. Oh, Kate. It goes all the way to the top. (laughs) I'm not sure what Natalie saw in him because Lang was described as a falling down drunk who was known to barge into his neighbor's apartments unannounced. And be like, look at this. Yeah. 
And the whole reason Lang was even living in the same apartment building as Karen is because she was the one who helped him find a place to live. Lang had met Karen through Andy Prime. Andy had introduced them. And when Lang mentioned he was looking for a new apartment, Karen offered to check with her building manager to see if anything was available. Mm -hmm. Turns out the unit just below hers was free. When he moved in, he and Karen chatted about hanging out sometime. Lang had only been a resident at that building two or three days when Karen died. Oh my God. Saturday night, November 30th, Lang had a lady over. We don't know if it was Natalie Wood or someone else because he was dating a couple of actresses at the time. The two were in bed when they heard a ton of commotion going on outside, people running up and down the stairs. This woman, Lang's date, gave a statement to police that Lang was uninterested in all the commotion going on. But when there was a knock on the door, he went to answer it. It was a cop letting him know his upstairs neighbor had been found dead. And had he heard or seen anything? He said no and went back to his date. And according to her, he didn't mention who it was or what had happened to the neighbor. He said nothing. He knew Karen. She helped him get an apartment. They had talked about hanging out. And a cop shows up and tells you she's dead and you act like you don't know her? One could argue that he just didn't want to get involved. But to not even mention to your date that your neighbor was just found dead. After the deputies left the note on Lang's door for him to contact the homicide department, he did. And he showed up at the police station in West Hollywood. Sergeant Bobby Chapman and Sergeant Jim Walkie were the first to speak with him. They asked him about the statement he made to the woman who claimed he called her and told her he knew Karen and had killed her. Mm-hmm. And Lang said he did know Karen and he had told his friend he killed her, but he was just kidding. You don't joke about shit like that, D. Lang. The sergeants questioned him about the neighbor who said he had walked into her apartment uninvited, telling her he'd been by Karen's on Friday and had lied to the cops when they came by. Lang said the neighbor was lying, that he never went to Karen's door Friday. And that he never lied to the cops. They asked him where he was on Wednesday evening, the night before Thanksgiving. Lang said he had dinner at Natalie Wood's house. He arrived at 7 p.m. and left around 11.30. Afterwards, he went to a friend's place where he drank and got high. He said he got back to his own apartment around 12.30 a.m. and went straight to bed. Chapman and Walkie asked him if he would take a polygraph, which he agreed to, and they drove him downtown. There, he was met by two other officers. And so now with these two new officers, as he's about to take this polygraph, Lang says, Hey, so I lied to those two sergeants. It's like, wow. Okay, dude, you are fucking nuts. Yeah. He says the neighbor actually was telling the truth that he had gone to Karen's that Friday and turned the doorknob and found it was unlocked, but he had not gone in. Why are you going up to her apartment, Ling? Yeah, dude, what what you doing? Do you feel the need to check on something? Mm-hmm. I believe Lang took the polygraph. I say believe because I can't find his results. But the fact that he immediately came clean to the officers when he got to the station downtown was like, hey, I lied to those two other guys. I think he was trying to, like, get that out there before he took this test. The other people who were considered suspects were Andy, the two friends, Reuben and Hathaway, as well as another friend of theirs. And he was only considered a suspect because he met up with those guys later, uh, later Wednesday evening. And he was the roommate of one of them. They all took polygraph tests. The results were inconclusive, as I mentioned before. Well, and polygraphs don't really mean anything. Exactly. They're bullshit. 
With no concrete evidence linking any of them to a crime, the cops didn't have anything to go on. Karen's parents were disappointed. Wow, there's a lot of typos right here. (laughs) This is when Kate stopped, uh, her mind stopped working. It really did. It was late at night when I was finishing this. Okay. Karen's parents were disappointed with how the investigation had been handled. They Mm -hmm. don't think the LAPD looked hard enough. Essie believed Andy killed her, and she made sure everyone knew it. His career took a huge hit in the wake of it all. No one wanted to hire him. And Cup, he didn't think Andy had anything to do with Karen's death. He thought that David Lang was the killer. Yeah, I mean, that's what I would think at this point. When he pressed investigators to look into him a little harder, they told him there was nothing they could do because Lang had moved out of the apartment building and into his sister Hope's house. And Hope had retained attorneys for him, and they told him not to talk to the police. When officers asked if he'd be willing to come in for a second polygraph, he refused. Uh. Years later, when asked about his comment that he had killed Karen, he laughed it off, saying to the reporter, Oh God, the police kept bringing that up. Within a week or so of this murder, we were all so crazed with it that people would be going around saying, I'm the strangler. I just want to put it out there that in all the research I did for this case, I haven't read any other statements by people claiming that they were the strangler. Essie Cupsnit was a strong believer in psychics and enlisted several to try and figure out what had happened to their daughter. All of the psychics had different theories. None of that turned up no anything shit. concrete. I mean, yeah. we didn't have Teresa Caputo. We sure did. At that time. Or Tyler Henry. <gasps> They're mediums, not psychics. So we got to oh, differentiate. Right. That's right. Jerry Cupsnit, Karen's brother, said Chicago mobsters offered to go to L.A. to help expedite the investigation, if you know what I'm saying. Cup declined the offer, (laughs) along with an offer from Mayor Richard Daly, who offered to send Chicago detectives to L.A. to assist the police. But Cup genuinely believed that the LAPD could handle it on their own, and he didn't want to offend them because he knew how he knows how that goes. Essie wanted to hire a private investigator. But Cup felt they should get approval from the police because he knew investigators. He just wanted to do things right. Exactly. He's trying to just, like, make sure that everyone... Is on the same page. Yes. Everyone's happy. Whereas, like, I understand. I understand, yep. like, both the mentalities. Absolutely. Like, he wants to do it by the book. Essie's like, we have to do whatever's possible. Exactly. The police did not give their approval, telling the Cups and it's a PI would only hamper the investigation. Uh, mm-hmm. So Cup obliged something he would always regret. Yeah. He did, however, call on his friend J. Edgar Hoover, head of the FBI. But because the crime did not cross state boundaries, the FBI couldn't officially get involved. There are those who believe Karen wasn't murdered at all, but instead died by suicide by taking an overdose of pills, citing the letter found in her apartment as a suicide note. No. You don't break your hyoid bone That's yourself. the thing. You can't ignore the broken hyoid bone. Author James Elroy, who has written about this case and who I have used as a source for this episode for no other reason than... He has some information I couldn't find elsewhere, specifically her journal entries. He has a theory that this was an accidental death. Oh. One thing investigators found in Karen's place was a book that was opened to a page with a passage about dancing in the nude to free your inhibitions. James Elroy posits that Karen took a bunch of pills and was following this book's suggestion of dancing in the nude to free herself. 
And because of all the drugs, she lost her balance, fell, knocking over the coffee pot, the bowl of cigarettes, and lamp, landed in a way that she broke her hyoid bone and then got up and laid down on the couch. I could follow that except for the hyoid bone because she would have had to have fallen in such an exact way and hit the front of her neck with such force. Was it cut? Like, was the skin cut or well, anything? Well, she was so badly decomposed by oh, the time they, they found really her. Tell. They couldn't find a lot of things. Yeah. I don't think I'd buy that. The thing is, she was tiny. She was five foot one. If she falls to the ground, she's not falling far. She's not going to have enough force to break. And what break would the... she have fallen on? Wouldn't that a have coffee like... table? A coffee table. Yeah. Okay. But I just, I it's, I think that's so far fetched. I will also say, he, he has a very crass style of writing, and the way in which he refers to women, and the way in which he refers to sexual encounters, is honestly kind of disgusting and so it's hard for me to give him any merit yes but again i am going to link his source because sure. it did give the journal i entries. mean that i see i can see how you could put those pieces together right um and anything can happen let's be clear like weird shit happens all the time sure i also dance nude sometimes who wouldn't do you think it maybe it was a suicide like could you break your hyoid bone from hanging yourself? Yes, but she did not hang. Well, that's the thing, though. Like, what if she had, like, committed suicide? Someone went in and found her, tried to get her down, but then panicked that it would look like they did it. The only thing is they didn't find anything that would have been, like... Where she could hang a, from? A, a bed sheet tied up or sure, a rope or anything sure, like that. Sure, that sure, wasn't sure. found. Okay. Well, fair enough. Yeah. Another theory is the JFK theory. There are those out there that believe her death is somehow connected to his assassination. What? Uh. This theory is presented by self-published author Penn Jones Jr. in 1967. Prior to that, no one thought the two deaths were connected. Basically, a story came out by the Associated Press that 20 minutes before the president was shot... An unidentified woman placed a phone call from Oxnard, which is about 50 miles from L.A., stating the president was going to be shot. And Jones is claiming the woman was Karen and that she had been tipped off by her dad, who had been tipped off by Jack Ruby, who in turn killed Lee Harvey Oswald. Jones claims Karen was killed by the mafia as a warning to her father to stay quiet about why JFK and Oswald were killed. So here's the thing. Yes, Irv Kupsnit did have mob connections. When I said earlier he was friends with everyone, I meant he was friends with everyone. But there is nothing linking Karen's death to JFK's. Cup had no knowledge that JFK would be shot. Neither did Karen. It's literally the opinion of one guy that other conspiracy theorists have, have latched onto. But there is zero evidence. It holds no water. And again, he's self-published. I'm calling bullshit. Yeah, bullshit. Absolutely. Bullshit. We may never really know what happened to Karen. Because so this is unsolved. It's unsolved. <sighs> because most of the people in this story are dead, including David Lang and Andy Pine. Oh, great. Cup and Essie never fully recovered after losing their daughter. Yeah. Both contemplated suicide, but instead poured themselves into their work. A couple of years after Karen died, they moved out of the Wellington Avenue home where Karen had grown up because they just couldn't bear to live there anymore. Mm -hmm. They ended up getting a condo on Lakeshore Drive. 
More than 1,500 people attended Karen's funeral, which was held here in Chicago. Andy Prime did not attend. And the first time I read that, I was like, what an asshole. But Tracks. everyone was looking at him like he was guilty, including her mother. I don't blame Why him for attending. Why would he go to, yeah, I don't. Uh, she's buried in Skokie, mm-hmm. and we actually went, we went. to the cemetery yeah. the other day. Uh, so I'm going to try to post that video. We took some pictures. Paid our respects. It really brings it to reality. It does. It was, it was very surreal to stand yeah. there. It's it's a little sobering, for it sure. It is, when very you're, much so. Especially after, like, and I hadn't, you know, you didn't know I the didn't story yet. I didn't know the yet. story, but now knowing it, like, yeah. looking back on that, that's... That's really, it's like kind of feeling a, a history. Or, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. Like the whole family is buried right next yeah. to each other. Um, They're it's all there. Karen, Essie, Irv, and Jerry. Oh, Jerry. And fun fact, Essie, one of her requests for when she was buried, yeah. she wanted to be buried with two packs of Pall Mall cigarettes and a lighter. Hey, hey. So that's down in that coffin oh. in there. <laughs> oh, man. That's crazy. But yeah, we'll post those pictures. I think... David Lang had something to do with it. I think it. so, too. And Reuben and Hathaway, later down the line, they changed their stories slightly in terms of, like, timing and how things went down in terms of, like, where they went afterwards and stuff. And that comes up as, like, oh, they changed their story. No. That's just time. Exactly. And how and you remember things changes as, as time moves on. There was never a sexual thing between Karen and either of those guys. And mm-hmm. Andy said that there was never a sexual thing. They said there was never. So I do think they were just friends. And they left when she fell asleep. They said they locked the door. I'm going to assume that they did. She was still awake because she talked to Andy on the phone between yes. 1130 and 12. It's quite possible that when David Lang returned home from his dinner with Natalie Wood, he went up to her apartment because he was known to just walk into people's apartments and knocked on the door and she answered it because it's, oh, this is her neighbor. I mean, again, this is me speculating, but this is her neighbor who has, she has helped get this she place. Knows him, yeah. And, you know, says, hey, come on in. It's very possible that she was on something and maybe not in her right state of mind. Yes. Mm -hmm. We don't know if she was sexually assaulted because they didn't look at it. Well, there was no immediate evidence. They were going to run more tests, but I have not been able to find the results of those tests. Mm -hmm. She looks a lot like Natalie Wood. And that's possibly a connection for David Lang. I think he is a good suspect. I think maybe he didn't mean to do whatever it is he did. I do think maybe he strangled her. That's me saying this. We don't know because her case is unsolved. But why else would he go up to her apartment on Friday and check the door, realizing it's still unlocked because he left it unlocked and realizing, uh-oh, she might not be okay in there. And that's why he didn't go in. And then he pretended the next day when the cops and the, you know, the media and everything was happening that Saturday night pretended he knew nothing about it that's just again that's my theory i hear you kate i actually i agree with you i think he did something do we know anything about like his mental state that night went from when from his dinner with natalie was he was drunk he he went to a friend's house after natalie's got drunk and high and then came home and the time he says he got home even though he says he went straight to bed but that is around the time that they estimate her death yeah I think he probably had something to do with it. I do too. 
And that's the case of Karen Cupsnit. Hey, Jesus. Let us know your thoughts. Yeah. Uh, you can do that on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube at Horrorwood Podcast. You can shoot us an email at horrorwoodpodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to send us your own stories. We're we're yeah, we're yeah, always please. taking people's, you know, personal stories yeah, of like it. spooky things or scary crime experiences. <laughs> <laughs> send them to us. And uh, if you are feeling super generous. You can hop on over to Patreon at patreon.com slash horrorwoodpodcast. And if you're already on the Patreon, you're getting another episode this week. Um, So look out for that. Have a lovely Thanksgiving if you're here in America. And if you're listening from somewhere else in the world, have a wonderful regular old week in November. And no matter where you are, don't do murder. Don't do murder. All right, let's go celebrate your birthday. Birthday.